Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Tamara Lucas. It's January the 17th, 2019, and we're here to talk about food in the Anthropocene, the Eat Lancet Commission on Healthy Diets from Sustainable Food Systems. My guests today are commissioners, Professor Tim Lang and Jessica Fanzo. Tim, could you introduce yourself, please? I'm Tim Lang, and I'm Professor of Food Policy at the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London, just up the road from where we're broadcasting. And Jess, who joins us on the phone. Hi, I'm Jess Fonzo. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University in the United States and also a commissioner on the report. The Eat Lancet Commission has been under development for over two years, and it outlines and defines the global problems with our food systems. In broad terms, this is manifested as around a billion people who are hungry and two billion people who are malnourished from not eating the right kind of food. The Commission also explores the impact of these faulty food systems on the ecology of the planet. Jess, could you perhaps outline some of the problems that we're facing in terms of the malnutrition and hunger and the eating of the wrong food? I think we are at a real crisis moment when we think about nutrition and and planetary health. Progress on tackling all forms of malnutrition has remained unacceptably slow. We still have a very high burden of undernutrition in the world. Stunting and wasting still remains quite high among children under the age of five. And we have this insidious rise in overweight and obesity among adults with now 2.01 billion adults being overweight and obese and a roughly 40 million children under the age of five who are overweight. So we have these multiple forms of malnutrition that are really lagging on as far as progress is concerned, particularly on the overweight obesity side. We're seeing this rapid rise all over the world in overweight and obesity from low to high income countries. And one of the biggest contributors to this malnutrition burden are diets, what we're eating. And diets now serve as one of the major risk factors of disability, morbidity, and mortality or death in the world. And these diets are suboptimal. And what we articulate in the commission report, so diets and what we're eating is contributing to this malnutrition burden. And at the same time, the diets that we're eating are moving on a track towards diets that are not sustainable for the planet. Intensive natural resource use, emitting greenhouse gases, which is also articulated in the commission report. So broadly, the commission is looking at the the scope of the problem from a nutrition point of view and then also approaching it from a sustainability point of view from the planet's boundaries and then finally putting together recommendations and policy tools to address the issue. Which of these elements needs to be addressed first and how the food systems have come to be in such a mess? I wonder whether you, Tim, could perhaps address how it is that we've so rapidly shifted to this position in the past five decades or so. It is an extraordinary thing that the Malthusian problem of would there be enough food to feed growing populations in some respects in the last 70 years has been resolved. There's plenty of food. There's an overconsumption problem alongside underconsumption and malconsumption. This is an extraordinary state of mm. affairs. And sometimes How, in the same population. In, in the same population, it? in the same region, in the same household. We have obesity in sub-Saharan Africa alongside a chronic old-style 
hunger. One couldn't have made that up 30 years ago. The architects of the the post-Second World War reconstruction essentially argued that all we need to do resolve the then big problem, which was underconsumption and maldistribution across the globe. If we just sorted that out, liberalized trade and produced more food, everything would be all right. Here we are in the 21st century knowing that's not all right. And one of the really important things about this Eat Lancet Commission report is it's a statement of where we are. It's a really authoritative, good, up-to-date, well-modeled account of the dynamics of where we are. It's back-to-back human health, public health, and ecosystems health all being distorted. And there's a mismatch there that we've got to sort out. And that's a big problem for policymakers. Mm. In terms of the actual diet that needs to be addressed, I wonder whether, Jess, you could say something about the nutritional value of the healthy reference diet that the Commission explores and recommends. Yeah, so the healthy reference diet is looking at from the extensive literature on nutrition and dietary patterns and their impacts on health outcomes. A healthy reference diet was established. It really marks out what types of food groups and at what level of consumption should the world be consuming. It is a diet that consists mainly of vegetables, leafy greens, different types of varieties of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, unsaturated oils like olive oil, for example, moderate amounts of seafood and poultry, and limiting some of the unhealthy components that the world is increasingly eating, that being red meat, processed, salted, cured type meats, sugar, refined grains and overly starchy vegetables. And we also at the same time are seeing a significant increase in highly processed packaged foods that are cheap, convenient, and tasty for (laughs) most palates. This healthy reference diet is meant to demonstrate across what food groups the world should be eating that provide major health benefits and have a significant reduction in mortality. Now, it can come with some controversy because we know the world eats very different diets depending on where you live, what your culture is, what your religion is, what your socioeconomic status is. But overall, when you look at all of the science, this reference diet is one in which the local diet that you eat in India, that you eat in Kenya, that you eat in Italy, could be applied to that local diet. So this reference diet is meant to be one that is broad, that most diets in the world could be shaped and fit into. I think a lot of the evidence coming from this reference diet are based on many papers that have looked at different dietary patterns across time, whether it be a vegetarian diet, a pescatarian or fish-based diet, a Mediterranean diet, a more Western American type diet. These dietary patterns have been studied very carefully to try to unpack what are the different components that make a diet healthy or unhealthy. Tim? I think one of the Many things I like about this report, the sort of the first 80% of the report, is that it captures that there is no one answer. Mm, There's no one diet. We shouldn't fetishize the Mediterranean any more than the Bolivian diet. It's saying something very different in nutritional 
and in epidemiological terms, there's a, a broad picture that we can draw, which Jess was drawing, and it can be translated and manifest in very different ways in mm. different cultures, different socioeconomic groups. What we're saying in this report is it's sort of a multi-world that we're in. There's, there's no one answer. We need multi-actors across multi-sectors at multi-levels of, of the world to all act to try and use this reference diet to say wherever we are, this is what we should be aiming for. And how we deliver that, how we grow it, how we transport it, how we process it, that then is a key driver of ecosystems. So it's a complicated picture that we're painting mm. in this, actually. It's not just the usual nutritional epidemiology. And I don't mean that disparagingly. It's about saying, what do we know right now in 2019? How does that fit this very diverse world, which is facing climate change, facing biodiversity loss, facing water, facing these planetary boundaries? But we can't go on eating as... Mm. America or Britain or the rich world eats or the rich in the poor world eat. We've yeah. got to eat in a different way. So this reference diet that uh, Jess has been summarizing is really important because it's actually the new framework for what mm. we need to ask the food system to do. To leaders in public health and medicine, we've got to get our act together, actually. We can't be silent on this and we've got to send very powerful signals to the food industry who are already quite nervous about things like climate mm. change. There is a way to go here and we can do it. It's going to be very difficult. Some of you are not going to like it. There are lots of things that you won't want, but it's got to be done. There is a need for what we call in the report a great food transformation and anyone can get involved in that. I've tended to work my working life more in the developed world, just more in the developing world. Whether whether you're in Malawi or Manchester or uh, in the rich parts of New York City or in, uh, in very poor areas of India. The message here is very powerful indeed. We've all got to address this. Jess, I wonder if we could take that point actually and, and have you speak to some of the developing country issues and how food systems targets might be put into place, what actions will be needed and what local support is necessary. When we see the commission report findings, you'll see these different scenarios of interventions or implementing measures, we're calling them to reduce environmental effects of, of the food system. Really getting to what Tim is talking about, I think different actors will find themselves acting in different places of what we recommend. And it depends on where you are in a high-income country versus a low-income country. While Diet shifts will be incredibly important, particularly reducing beef consumption on greenhouse gases. For those countries that consume a lot of meat, there's places in, in, in low-income settings where people don't get enough animal source foods. So there's going to have to be bigger shifts in some places in changing some of the high carbon footprint type diets and other places that are going to need more if they want to deal with the undernutrition situation. So we need a, an equity, a more balanced way of getting to a sustainable diet across the board for everybody that has health and environment benefits. So I think the diet shifts are going to look different depending on where you are. I think the other thing that we really point out is that it's not just going to be diet. You know, it's it's not just shifting diets and consuming less cows. You know, it's going to be about reducing food loss and waste. It's going to be about better production, sustainable systems 
through better production practices, more natural resource efficiency. And so it's, it's a whole suite of interventions that different actors will resonate with in the report, some diet, some on production practice, some on food loss and waste. And I think it's really important to emphasize that as part of the commission report. It's not just simply reduce red meat consumption and the world will be saved. It's about doing a whole suite of things that involve many actors doing the great transformation that will impact greenhouse gases cropland use, biodiversity, nitrogen and phosphorus applications. So it's a whole holistic view of how the entire food system and the actors involved need to shift. And I think it's a really important nuance that will come out from the commission report. It's not just a simple solution of America reducing their, you know, consumption of hamburgers. And the thing is, the key is that we need to understand there's there are countries that are not getting a sufficient diet. They're not getting enough animal source foods that are very important from a nutrition point of view. And at the same time, they're going to suffer from the decisions made of our food system production practices and climate change. So they have this double hit. You know, so how can those who have more resources, more power that has more potential to change their diets, make bigger transformations to ensure that those who have less choices and less options are protected at the same time. We've described the problem in in many different aspects and come at it from many different directions, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the tools, please. Tim. The report ends, for obvious reasons, with lots of examples of what can be done. We give five overarching strategies that we think are really critical wherever you are. Health's got to be at the heart of the commitment towards healthy diets. You know, there's no point having a food system unless health is at the heart. We've got to reorient agricultural priorities away from just quantity to quality in health. We've got to probably intensify production, but as long as we do it sustainably, it's got to be about quality and high output linking to quality. Also, at the same time, it's got to be really thinking about land use and sea use. We haven't talked very much in this podcast yet about the sea, but we're a blue planet and every country tells its people to eat fish. Well, actually, go and look at the fish, fish stocks and the sustainability audits of the seas and you can't feed 10 billion people on everyone eating fish without there being a, a, a complete destruction of fish stocks. So there are some really important issues there. And then, of course, the big running sore of food waste. We've got a, modern forms of food waste in the rich countries where consumers are wasting because food is so cheap or um, not valued or there's so much churned out and too much being sold in offers by supermarkets and so on. We've got a problem of waste, both the old form of waste uh, at farms and new forms of waste at, at the point of consumption. But then we focus in, well, okay, what does that mean? I mean, this is about prices. Governments and countries have got to be thinking about, can we really keep aiming in rich countries for cheap food and in poor countries where food is very expensive for the poor? How can we get the pricing signals to factor in ecosystems and human health in a different way? Those are really big policy wonkish things, but they've got to be sorted out. We've 
got to sort out the urban-rural differences. We're an urbanised world at the moment, but the rural populations are still growing because population is growing. We've got to be thinking about shorter supply chains so we're not wasting energy as they go across supply chains. We've got to improve market access. We've got to really almost certainly control the messages of the mind, the marketing, the advertising, what, what people like me call the consciousness industries. Food isn't just about nutrients, it's about pleasure. And wow, is the food industry good at selling us their pleasure and distorting our health and the cause of it. So there are a whole number of things that we've got to do. And we also really do enter into this very important area of should governments, and it's only governments can do this, set sustainable dietary guidelines. Every country is bit by bit. It's been one of the successes of the UN. The WHO and the FAO have encouraged countries to set nutrition and food-based dietary guidelines. Should those be sustainable? Should they be sustainable dietary guidelines? And we say yes, they should be actually. Maybe it'll be done in different ways in different countries. Again, we're not prescriptive, but do we need to have guidelines that really capture the complexity that this report has done? Yes, we do. And yes, they can be done. And countries are beginning to do it. And that's got to be accelerated very fast. Jess. Tim's really hit on a lot of the highlights. I mean, as he had articulated, there's so many reports and high-level panels and policy platforms and dialogues right now focusing on food systems, many of them being planet and people centered. So I think it's a really exciting time. But the next question is, what do all these reports result in? Are, you know, are we seeing increased investments in ending all forms of malnutrition and improving food systems to ensure they are delivering healthy diets. I think the attention is there. The political will is there. Now it's just, does the rubber meet the road and and are we seeing changes? And I think I still believe in the sustainable development goals, although there are doubters out there about their utility and accountability. But I think the SDGs do frame climate change, food, agriculture, health into a unified agreed upon roadmap that we can lean on and and look to to try to get to a common place. I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in the food world right now from innovation and technology and the way people are thinking, purchasing and consuming food. I think government action is waking up to things like taxes, front of the pack labeling to nudge consumers and ensuring they make healthy choices. But I completely agree with Tim that government, along with the plethora of diverse private sector actors, need to make it easier for consumers to make healthy and sustainable choices. It's a win-win for business. It's a win-win for governments, ensuring their citizens are healthy. When we realize that if we can have a healthy population of people and planet, it's really at the bottom line for private sector, it is the best business approach forward. To me, it's really an interesting time to see more will around shaping and changing food systems. I think there's also, you know, the two other things we we talk about a little bit in, in the commission report, but maybe not enough. I think in the low-income countries context, they have the opportunity to leapfrog and not make some of the same mistakes that high-income countries have made. I think they 
have seen the writing on the wall. They've seen the evidence of what does not work. So what can they do and not make some of the same mistakes as their food systems transform? And one of the things we mentioned very subtly, and Tim probably can comment more on this, we have the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, and it was quite important in in shaping the climate dialogue agenda around evidence that climate change is real, it's human-induced. Wouldn't it be amazing to have some kind of oversight body in the food system space? You know, we need more voice, unified voice around evidence for food systems that has a direct link to policy change. So to me, some sort of larger body that brings all the actors together would be an amazing thing for the food system world to do in really shaping evidence-based policymaking. Tim. Table 7 on page 38 spells out some options there in the spirit of what Jess and I have been talking about and what the commission was about was not being prescriptive and saying, thou shalt do this to governments or to companies or to consumers. Saying, look, here's a range of different ways we could deliver what Jess has been talking about, of capturing and bringing together this complexity, ranging from, you know, an IPCC intergovernmental panel on climate change type body on sustainable diets. Why not? Look how powerful that has been at pushing through to having the UN having a a new global food systems observatory. So we put a range of different options, countries and their alliances, we say in the report, we want alliances to come together to thrash these things out, use the options, look at what other countries and other people are doing. But whatever you do, it's got to be part of the great food transformation. We're absolutely clear about that. There's a core that runs through this whole report. Wow, are we in a problem with Mm. planet Earth and public health, and we've got to sort it. Thank you. That very neatly summarises the complexity of the challenge ahead, but also gives us some hope. I would like to thank both our guests, Tim Lang and Jessica Fanzo. The Eat Lancet Commission is free with registration on thelancet.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.